it's the biggest thing that's happened in reptile YouTube content so far, I think. I think that's a fair thing to say. In terms of the scientific aspect, nothing like this has ever been done before in like a literature sense in the systematic reviews and things and like the world first we're doing there. But I mean, as a reptile YouTube content sense, this is an, a, a whole new frontier and it's scary. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Animals at Home podcast. My name is Dylan Perrin, and thank you so much for tuning in today. Today, I'm speaking with Liam Sinclair. I'm sure many of you are already very familiar with Liam. Liam and his partner, Ellie Hills, run the YouTube channel and podcast, Reptiles and Research. Now, if you're subscribed to the Animals at Home network on the podcast or on Spotify or Apple, you would already have seen the Reptiles and Research podcast because it is under the Animals at Home network umbrella. So if you're subscribed on one of those apps, you probably have seen their episodes get downloaded to your phone. They are up to some incredible work all the time, but specifically in this episode, we're discussing the ball python deep dive that they have decided to embark on. You may have seen the GoFundMe make its way around the internet just recently, and they're already over $2,000 raised, which is absolutely incredible. Well, really more when you talk about donations of equipment and whatnot that's been raised. People are excited about this project. So if you're not sure what that is, this episode will fully lay out the concept of the idea. What is a ball python deep dive? Why did Ellie and Liam decide to do it? And then what are the aspects of the actual project. What sort of things are they looking to accomplish? They're actually planning a trip to Ghana. They're doing an SBI study, which will study how ball pythons use their enclosures. This is real citizen science and also just scouring the internet for all of the peer-reviewed science that goes along with ball pythons and, and creating a sort of a meta-analysis for the for us, people who aren't don't have the time to read 300 studies, to really understand what the scientific literature says. So we discuss how he and Ellie are going to avoid biases you know, how are they going to present the information in a way that doesn't seem like they are have an agenda to prove or to, to prove that ball pythons behave in a certain way. We discuss all that in this episode and more. If you're looking for more information on this podcast or any other on the network, make sure you head to animalsathomenetwork.com. If you would like to join us on Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com slash animalsathome. If you do become a patron member, you automatically get in uh, added to the discord server which gives you the access to other listeners and you can have some great conversation there thank you so much to custom reptile habitats for sponsoring this episode of the podcast if you do need a new reptile enclosure i highly recommend going to check them out they are top quality high level enclosures you can find an affiliate link in the youtube description or the show notes again that is an affiliate link so if you do make a purchase a commission comes back to me of course at no extra cost to you let's jump into this episode enjoy Liam, welcome to welcome back to the podcast. I'm not sure how many appearances. This is like got to be fourth or fifth appearance on the podcast. Of course, you have your own show on the network as well. So thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much for having me on, Dylan. Um, I think it's like the fourth time that I've been on now. Fourth, I think. Yeah, something like that. And this is you. You've started uh, quite a little commotion in the reptile keeping community. I, I think it. I, I kind of think it started like a couple. Well, I, I shouldn't say it started because ever since you started your channel, you've always been you know touching onto this more controversial controversial topics or not even controversial, just you know highlighting information for people and. Uh, you know, there's a section of the community that gets mad about it. And I think it kind of, it seemed from my point of view that it hit a breaking point maybe in like March when uh, you had some, some 
uh, the ball python info kind of go viral a little bit. We'll talk about that in a second. But for those who are totally unfamiliar with what the project that we're talking about today, can you just give us like the elevator pitch for the ball python deep dive? And then I, I'm curious about like what, what got you motivated to do it. But just as an um, umbrella, what are we looking at? So the ball python deep dive is a basically an episodic docu-series that incorporates all the studies that have ever existed into the storyline for like new keepers to just absorb and watch and learn really good information from the start it's going to be episodic so one starts at like looking at what is a bull python and their morphology their natural history their taxonomy we know that the sign type is actually near us the original um bull pythons collected to describe them as a species is stored in a museum near us so we want to go visit that and film that and do a segment on on that and the expedition that described bull pythons and things like that they move into care and what they do in the wild and hopefully go out to africa and film some stuff um and also we're going to be doing studies on bull pythons as well that are real peer-reviewed studies that will be published hopefully um in white literature and uh be a, i think it's the first time i've seen anyone read like vlog a study happen mm-hmm. there's like a real study so it's a lot of like as the bull python people like to put a world first they're going to be in this deep dive Mm-hmm. Yeah, good good uh, use of the vernacular. Um, it, it is weird, like when you think about, you know, you can think about where we are scientifically, and you know, all the peer reviewed literature that's out there. Just not even just in reptiles, but just in general. It it is weird to think that what this will be, it will, will be a world a world first. Like it'll actually be the first time someone has done something like this. And it seems like how is that even possible? But really. Even reptile research is not that old as far as, you know, maybe like 40, 50 years, and, but really not in super intently until the last like maybe 20 years. And there's just not been enough time to, to do something like this. You know, you're going to compile all the research that's been done and also create new research. Like it's kind of weird. Isn't that weird to think that this will be the first time someone's done this? It's a lot of pressure, I can tell you that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's weird because a lot of past research has been so focused on like herpetology and we're now only start venturing into like herpetoculture based research and focused on actual the keeping of reptiles. This is where we're trying to blend the two worlds and, uh, and look at something really interesting. Yeah. And hopefully that, you know, as, as, as far as, or as long as everything goes well and, you know, it's not going to, I shouldn't say smooth because it's going to be a lot of work and it's a, I mean, I can't imagine doing a series like this, but hopefully it kind of sets a, a bit of a template to do this copy and paste for other, other species, other popular species. Is that kind of what you're thinking could happen? Yeah, that is what we're looking to do. We're looking for like every channel has like this big thing that's like their identity sort of thing, their mark on herpetoculture, if you will. And we really want this to be ours. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I've been almost dreaming about for a while now. I originally wanted to do it on like Beer the Dragons until I realized like how in depth it would be because the depth that I want to go into is going to be insane. Like even like I did my my thesis on gut loading and I focused only on gut loading and then niched down to only cricket gut loading. And that was still like hundreds of studies. So what we want to do, the level of depth we want to do it was going to be too hard for the first time ever doing something like this for like beer the dragon so i thought why not do ball python because obviously it's very topical right now and also like there's it's a little bit less complex with like not not having to look at gut loading and things like that and it'd be a good place to start to get it right and then we've got a framework in place to move on to more um i want to th- i don't want to say more complex species but more complex projects with like avenues and like little streams coming off of it that would be like harder to corral than snakes per se yeah 
Yeah, and it, and and that's one thing with the way peer reviewed literature kind of works. Everything becomes very narrow focused. Like you write a paper, it's almost impossible to have a broad topic for a paper. So you need that meta analysis, you know, piece to draw everything together and pull like the, you know the thirty studies together to to give you some information about how to care for them. Where like a lot of peer reviewed is, I'm not sure what sort of peer reviewed research you're finding on ball pythons, but is it mostly just natural history type thing or? Yeah, there's a lot of natural history. Now, there is a lot that's going into herpes culture now because it's becoming new, newer and stuff. I think everyone knows the plus one paper of like they put them in the vids, then the vivariums and things like that. So there's more things like that coming out. But previously, it's a lot of research coming out of like herpetology and like looking at other avenues. Like Luca Lucili is the big name in bull python research with guys out there in Africa for like dozens of years just researching them. But what I like about that is that it wasn't done with herpes culture in mind. And then what that means is that there is no bias because he has no stake in how they're kept. He doesn't care. So when he's looking at like the ectoparasite difference between males and females, looking at different like um, arboreal heights and stuff, he's looking at of this like fascination aspect of like, this is a really cool species to use as a, like a model for like how sexes within the species can like separate and things like that to, research other things so he's not even thinking about captive care so it's like really pure in that sense where he's not trying to make it seem one way or the other it's just like this is this this and this and this and this and then outside of that you could look into it from a herpes culture perspective into like what natural behaviors might be and how we can best like implement things to cater to those but he couldn't be biased in any way since a form because he doesn't care mm-hmm. yeah, about what we do with the information it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's not looking at it through that lens. And, but it'll be kind of hard, well, for you and Ellie, it won't, it'll be impossible to not look at the information through the lens of a keeper, I guess. But that's okay, too. It's just as long as you're staying somewhat, you know, you, you want to be staying objective to the information that you're gathering. Mm-hmm. That's a big part of the, the deep dive that we want to really focus on. Mm-hmm. And for anyone, like I've known you for years now, I guess, almost three years or even more, but, and you've always, as soon as you started your channel, you always had this idea of doing something big research wise. I mean, you, you named your channel reptiles and research for a reason. And I think you've always toyed with different kind of models of potentially like giving more information to the hobby. And it seems like it's just taken you a few years to figure out exactly the path to do it. And it just seems like now this is the right form of, of information or the right process to go through to actually have the most impact on the hobby. Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of things I've done in the past is me trying to like find my way and find things that are going to work and things that will stick and things that were cost effective um, for the time it takes for the benefit it gives sort of thing. But something like this, I think, is like such a big splash that it's going to be like long lasting. And one of the things, hopefully, in my mind and what I dream about and envision, it's something that's like, in 30 years time oh do you remember that series it's like Mm -hmm. something like monumental hopefully yeah yeah well and that's a that's the challenge i mean people who are listening probably are not youtubers uh, maybe some of them are but that's the challenge of putting videos out on youtube because you want to give good information and you want to give the right information as well but you also have to deliver it in a way that hopefully holds attention and and hopefully eventually makes you some money as well because you don't want to do this for free because there's a tremendous amount of time and money we all put into producing these types of things but it, it it's it's just that is that in itself is a challenge to be giving you know it might not be interesting to give information about cricket gut loading <laughs> but you have to deliver it in a way that's interesting enough to make it work on the channel which is 
I, I think maybe in some ways the deep dive almost, you're almost letting go of that in a way and just saying, I'm just going to put the information out. I'm going to make it episodic. Hopefully the information is attractive enough to keep people. And either way, it's going to be a massive benefit. Yeah. I mean, there's elements of it, like wanting to weave in like storytelling and like the underlying music and like, er, like swell of music to get into like this point of like moving this direction of this story arc and things like that. So it's going to be something really crafted and take a lot of time. So it's not going to be like someone's there with like a scroll and is reading information too. It's going to be something I don't want to say Netflix like, because to say it's going to be Netflix like quality of storytelling, it's probably, you could set yourself for a big big fall. But camera quality and production wise, that's what we're shooting for. And then we're going to spend a lot of time on the on the on the production and making it something that's actually entertaining as well as educational. Um, and that's going to have everyone's heart and souls go into that. So hopefully, it is a big thing. Yeah, and, and we'll get into funding later. But you know, if you do get enough funding on it, you can get someone to help with the editing and the story, like the storytelling editing piece of it. You know, you know, you you we learn a lot being editors at home. You know, trying to learn how to do it yourself, but that could be a, an added benefit. Now, I'm curious, was there like you talked about? You wanted to do the bearded uh, bearded dragon deep dive, and I know that was something that's on your plate, and you shifted it to ball python. But was what besides the, I guess less complex aspect to ball pythons was there anything else that sort of pushed you into say i have to do this um well they they are the number one reptile as far as i'm aware there's lots of like survey data from the fbh in the uk and there's lots of studies looking at the amount of google trends data and things like that it's for snakes especially it's bull pythons and even like for reptiles especially it's bull pythons so the most kept the most loved shall we say um but also the the least understood. And that's why I wanted to do something that would have the most help possible for the widest amount of animals possible for the benefit of the entire hobby, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there's the like the hardiness and the simplicity factor to them that makes them such great pets, but that also allows them to fall into the pit of no one really caring how to care for them because uh, they don't die. Yeah. Um, well, you think about how like large their range is. They go everywhere from like Congo or Sudan, like Nigeria. You're going all the way to like the western coast, all the way to like dipping into like the eastern areas, and like they're going through such a myriad of different habitats. They would have to be hardy and adaptable to have such a large range across different habitats and microclimates. So that obviously translates to their their captive hardiness, and obviously people really utilize that mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about what happened in march um i'm sure many people listening saw this and there was it was a bunch of things it wasn't just one thing but it started with you doing a basically what amounted to be like a herp society meeting and you did a presentation on ball pythons and i'll get you to talk about that in a second and then you clipped it out and made some shorter clips that were more um I guess they had a more viral vi, virality piece to it, or, you know, because they were shorter and more shareable, and they kind of blew up, and that allowed you to do a couple of different appearances on some shows. And so, why don't we start with you know the, the the presentation that you gave, and then how it kind of blew up, and some of the response that you got. I think the best way to approach this is with like complete and utter transparency. So, the talk that I gave um, was a full like long 20 odd minute talk and what i did was that i thought i'd take 
sections out and make it part one, part two, part three, part four and stuff. So that if anyone like scrolling through social media saw this like short two minute video and they really caught their eye of like this peak bit of information from the entire long video, they'll be like, oh, okay, what's this? And then it's like, oh, part two. And like, okay, it's only another minute. Oh, that's cool. Oh, part oh, that's cool. Part four. And they're like, do you know what? I'm going to watch this entire thing. So I was hoping to use that to capture that as a method to capture people that wouldn't necessarily look at like a really long video. Um, and I posted it to Ball Python Facebook groups, which I knew were very rack heavy. I'd like it full transparency. I knew what I was doing. I was leaning into it being something that people wouldn't like for it, the virality aspect. And I was completely comfortable doing that because it's not like I was making anything up. It's like, this is the science, whether you like it or not, here's the science. And I did, I intentionally put it in front of the faces of people that wouldn't like it because I knew that would be beneficial in terms of like the numbers and momentum it would build for like new keepers finding the information outside of that and helping them and things like that. So um, yeah, people didn't particularly like that. Um, it caused offense with people who, for whatever reason, felt attacked by it even though no names were mentioned just a aspect of husbandry and even a niche aspect of the husbandry so not even just racks i was talking about very bare bones minimalistic racks with nothing in them with no light access whatsoever and obviously people just felt um whether that made them feel a certain way or it felt like they were being called out or whatever way people didn't like it and what what was expected to happen happened basically <laughs> You basically lit a dumpster on fire. <laughs> I did, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, gasoline. It, yeah, exactly. And it became this thing. And it, it was some interesting things that came out of that. I mean, uh, even I accidentally got somebody's Instagram account banned in this entire thing because there, there was a, an individual, I want to say high desert pythons i think i'm saying that i think that's his, his username and, and he was sort of poking fun at the idea because essentially you were just talking about enrichment and, and how to transition the, from the tub and and you know nothing controversial from our side of things and, and they were kind of making fun and so i was basically just saying um the, the fact that they're making fun of the concept of enrichment shows us how far apart these two sides are you know we're we're nowhere near each other if they think that by enrichment we mean like you know a, a, a slide basically he showed a picture of like i think it was a slide inside a tub like something goofy and it was it was a joke but then but then all the advancing people went and attacked his page and reported him for like poor animal care it was a weird very weird time and so it was kind of both sides fighting and it really what it showed is wow both sides are not willing to move in either direction and the, the, they each cannot describe each other's position very well it seemed like and uh, and then you actually had an experience going on a more of a sort of a more frack podcast to give your mm -hmm. position and i think it went I, from when i listened to it i thought it went okay i know you were kind of frustrated with it i like how you came off of the controversial one in that entire endeavor and not me <laughs> yeah i don't know what happened but somehow i got roped into it i'm like what the heck yeah um that whole thing um, I wasn't even like really involved in that on Instagram either. I was kind of like a casual observer and that whole thing just happened. And I was like, what's happening? I kind mm. of created this thing and just let it exist. And then other people like really ran with it. And I'm just there like, okay. At that point you lose control of the narrative as well. Like something that you say that's like, okay, so that means that these animals brains, if they're left in like with sensory deprivation for a long time they can't cope with new experiences because they're so fearful and the, the brain structure can change and things like that they don't have as many neuro, um, neuro pathways as those that were like in, used to like doing things and using their brain 
um, it's basically use it or lose it. So if they don't get, get to use it for years in like sensory deprivation, then basically they're going to be dumber than those that have like complex environments. So I said, when we're raising animals to go into pet homes, let's just give them a little bit of enrichment so that when they're given to a pet owner's house, where they're going to keep it in a vivarium in complexity, it's not something that's so fearful and shut down. And I offered people suddenly the tool set to avoid the situation that has been underlying the entire industry that no one knew why there's so many animals it's like oh yeah some do better in vivariums but some do better in racks but like oh some people are outliers and some some snakes are outliers and they sometimes do better in vivariums who knows why well then i, I tried to provide the why um and then it just kind of went shebang even though that i was providing like everybody with the answers to make shifts to make incremental change even from racks and stuff but i think once you put something like that into ether um people will take it and change your narrative mm -hmm. to be harsher than what you originally intended it and the whole the, it gets into like a runaway train situation yeah yeah it, it really does and, and i think that's when we realized, okay, this is maybe not the best way of even communicating this information because it's just it becomes uh, us versus them, and it's not it's it's not an ideal way for us to communicate with each other, especially because we're all reptile keepers. We actually have a passion about the same animal, so we at least have that in common. And it, as far as you know, it, it it seems the use it or lose it concept of neuroplasticity is such a obvious thing, but it just didn't for whatever reason it didn't the, the link didn't made however there were lots of people that were like oh that makes a lot of sense you know put some leaf litter in a tub allow the animal to start experiencing some new stimulus and and hopefully over time they they do kind of gain from that but it was still um yeah it, the, i think there's more more impact we can have as far as you know helping people out and and that's the main thing is that when people buy a pet ball python they're not interested in putting it in a in an opaque tub if, especially if it's your first one, this is not going to happen. And so that's where the failure happens is they want it in their vivarium in their living room and then the snake fails. Yeah, exactly. I don't think I actually answered your question. You asked me a question. I went on a tangent, didn't actually direct the answer oh, to your question. Oh, 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 yeah. I was just saying that you went you, uh, you went on a ball python, um, more ball, ball python centric podcast. And I thought you did a great job kind of explaining your position. Is that? Um, did you do more than uh, one? I did a few. Oh, you did a so few. So I did one of them that was um didn't go the way I wanted it to. Um like I went into it and it was like, So your name's Liam? And I was like, Yeah, because but that's an Irish name. I was like, Yeah, but you're English, yeah. Well, that doesn't make sense. I'm like, oh here we go. Yeah. I knew what it was gonna be like. It was just silly. But I did some other ones, um like um YouTube and friends did a live stream on Instagram with her and we right, went right, through right. it. We had a really good long conversation. Um, and the reason that she even said that is because she didn't like the fact that um, people weren't making use of t like expressing the information. They just wanted to play silly buggers. So she was like, let's do a live stream and let's just sort of talk and you're just going to get to speak uninterrupted and it'll be like nice. So that went really well. But um, yeah. When it's something so controversial, there's going to be some people that are going to make it about this like aha gotcha thing, and it's it's not about that. It's about science. Yeah, and it's exactly, and it's about the welfare of the animal and what we can do better. And so that's I think you know that was a lot of foundation for for what this this project. You know, you fast forward, you know, six or eight weeks after that, we had this kind of tumultuous time where it was more viral. It was kind of stressful because people were going back and forth. It was more fighting than anything. And then you know, a couple 
a month later, you came up with this amazing idea, you and Ellie, to, to really just lay out the information. Let's get this species as locked down as possible. And uh, and even beyond that, because you're going to try to you know uncover some new information. So why don't we break down, let, let's say, if money wasn't an issue, because money's always an issue, uh, as far as this ball python deep dive, if you had unlimited funds, tell us about the perfect uh, execution of this plan. So if we had unlimited funds, I would go to Af- Africa like a different parts of the season so we're going to ghana in like the wet season and then in the dry season as well so that it's from the same person so with the same um objectivity that we want to come with it so to everyone that thinks i'm going to be like trying to force it to be like oh yeah they climb they're hoping i'm going to do that i'm not going to do that if we go in the wet season and it's like knee high water and things are genuinely like clinging to branches because they try not to drown we're going to show that so, like, don't think I'm going to try and twist things to, to suit a narrative. Like, we absolutely refuse to do that. So, um, I'm going on a tangent again. Um, so, but if it was just no money, we were doing multiple times of the year. So, it's from the same team of people. So, that it was, like, the same objectivity. But because it's not um, unlimited amounts of money, what we're going to do is go during the wet season because everyone prior has gone during the dry season. It's There's a lot of pressure. So, even I'm thinking, like, like crap if we go to africa and we don't find a single royal we've like wasted loads of money and time so the easy way to do it would be go during the breeding season and then link up with, with the trappers and hunters in the area to guide you and then go out to where they know they're going to be where they collect them from year in year out um, and take you straight to the burrows where the animals are sat on eggs during estivation during the hottest time of year where they're not going to be leaving much and just dig them up because that's the safe way to play it i think um, how I would do it if I didn't really feel like I had to go during the wet season. Um, but everyone's done that. There's so many different documentaries of that being the case. But that's only like a small part of their entire year. We want to go during the wet season and really try and like capture some behavior from there. Is is the wet season like December, January, February type time? The wet season is, uh, well, it, you basically have like in like two sort of halves, so like the dry season and the wet season. Um, we want to go sort of like in between like sort of September and November-ish sort of sort of period. That would be a nice ballpark, but none of that is set in stone. We haven't really made start making concrete plans till we know they have the money to go. Right. But also, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a chicken for the egg sort of thing. You make all these complex plans about money and stuff and like calculate hotels or like or if you go to um, hostels or things like that, but you don't do that for you. You know, you have any money, so it's a bit of a chicken for the egg situation we're planning right now. But we're like dubiously looking into like planning and like just, but not like setting out a clear plan that can't happen until we know what money we're playing with, sort of thing. Yeah, well, it it, it would be interesting too because you know, like you said, it's kind of two parts. You have the dry season and the wet season, but also there's a transitionary time between the dry and the wet and between the wet and the dry on the back end of the year so there's probably some interesting behaviors in there too you know are these animals moving a little little bit more are they more active are they hunting during that time especially if you're getting ready for more of an estivation period you know going into the dry season like you said most of the people who have gone before have come during the dead of the summer when it's super hot and these animals are pretty low energy low low movement and they're dug up or you know they're underground um do you know how wet the wet season is? Is it like you said? It could could it be like ankle deep or more? Well, it's 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 wet wet. So um, we I talked to. I'm gonna have to look up this person's name. I'm sorry, it's a Swedish name. Um, it's the it's the lady from Sweden who breeds a load of Boskmontus, and she went out there with, um, 
Daniel Bennett and stuff. Let me just find her name so I don't sure. yeah. do her. Uh, I got to do her justice. So it's Linnea Vargin Safia or Sophia, one of the two. If I've mispronounced that, I'm sorry. Um, I'm English and I'm rubbish. But um, we were talking to her and she was like, when she goes out there to look for bosques in the same habitat, like it, the heavens are just open. It's real hard rain and it'll look like there's just lakes everywhere. But then she would like, the sun could come out that day and by morning it's gone yeah the ground so like, is so dry like it just flash floods in. and then it's gone again it, it's that hot that it just bakes off so what we're looking to to look at is that might be a completely valid observation and i, I would imagine that it is but is it a case of they have to eat during the wet season, right? Because they're not moving and doing much during the, the dry season because they're sat on eggs and stuff. So this entire period is their active and feeding period. So are they going up into trees and hunting and eating birds like other studies in, in like numerous areas say, and like eating rodents and stuff and things like that as well, and bats and whatnot, using like arboreal positions? And then during that period, there are floods, which means more of them have to just disperse upwards to get out of the water. And then that's when people see the obvious um, observations of seeing them everywhere because they're like trying to get out of water. So it could be like they're cruising and being a bit more cryptic and hunting and stuff um, when it's just the wet season and you don't really see it that much. But when it is a flood, they're everywhere and you really see it. It's like when it rains and worms come up. Like worms are doing their thing, but it's such a big event that like that's when they're all over the pavement and things mm -hmm. like that. So we want to see whether it is just like you can't find anything, or it's like oh yeah, there's a flood and that's the only reason they climbed. Yeah. So we could go out there and find nothing and we answer nothing. But if we went out there and it floods and we find it, it doesn't really answer the question either. But if we go out there and it doesn't flood and we still find them like cruising around, or if we happen to find one like climbing or hunting or something, then that would be an observation outside of flooding showing that actually in this Ghana area, they are actually climbing. So yeah. it's about like finding things and hoping to find something and just get some behavioral observations down because we don't want to fake it. A lot of people go out and like plant animals, which I refuse to do it. So if we go out there and find nothing of value, we, we will come back so we find nothing. We'll look at, we'll get climate data and things like that. But if we don't find like some miraculous footage of like some, royal doing something that when i'm just we're just gonna be completely honest and like we found we found nothing and we're not gonna fake it i refuse yeah which is probably the right way to go because it would come off as a little bit unauthentic if inauthentic if if you just kind of you know tried to create something that wasn't there or, you know whatever it's better to just say hey we didn't find anything and and i think even if you didn't find anything just really doing a great job documenting the landscape because you will know where they are. Like, you know, you'll be able to talk to locals and they'll, they can tell you this is where we find ball pythons at this time of year. You get a good idea of what the ground looks like, how rugged it is, what's the elevation change because that's the one ironic thing that I sort of find with uh, people who are hardcore black tub, like opaque tub keepers is they'll say um, they never climb yet they live in termite mountains which are like six and a half feet tall you know the, the maybe the maybe they're saying that the ball python is in the ground part of the termite mound i don't know but obviously there are things there are rocks there are boulders there are things that these animals have to move over essentially the point i'm making is these animals have to use their muscles in some fashion to move their way across the landscape whether it's climbing a tree or just climbing up over a ridge or something there's going to be something like that and it would be really neat to have a good documentation of the of the landscape 
Yeah, like we want to look at so much climate data. I mean, like when before Bennett, uh, Daniel Bennett died, he left um, loads of um, like data loggers about. Um, mm. And then Linnea um, was asked before he passed away to go collect them. But then COVID happens and then they set it out for a few more years. So there's like years and years of climatic data that's been collected. And she knows um, where they from, are. From the habitat. Yeah. Well, she was doing it for Bosques, but it's the same habitat. There's bull yeah. pythons there. So there's climatic data from Ghana that we will hopefully um, should be kind enough to let us use and things like that. But also go and find some um, real microclimate data as well. So if we how we were able to find like a bull python basking, we'd be able to take like surface temperature readings, power density readings. Um, we want to take Thomas Griffiths with his like spectrometer out there to look, measure things and um, just do loads of data, just collect so much data and bring it back around like actual behavioral um, observations as well. Not just like blinds, like hit point, like a temp gun at the floor and blow this temperature and it just means nothing. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't want to do that. I want to do like around actual behavior and what this could mean and things like that. Yeah, and then you could synthesize that and put it through the strainer of herpeticulture and say, this is how I could potentially recommend caring for the ball python. Like, you're never going to come back and say, okay, they get three feet of rain in December, so dump three feet of rain into your enclosure. You know, you're, we're, not, we're never going to strive to replicate exactly what they have in nature. Although, maybe the recommendation could be something like you should mist every day, something that maybe ball python keepers aren't doing as much. And, and maybe during that wet season, it should be a little more damp. But but there's nuance, right? There's nuance when you're keeping something in captivity. We're not actually trying to carbon copy exactly what they have in the wild, but we can use the wild to to guide our captive version of, of their care. Yeah, I mean, like from a scientific approach, like we go out, we find the one ball python basking and that's it. Well, that data is around only one behavioral observation. So we can't like extrapolate that and say that's how we should keep all ball pythons. But mm. it's an idea there that we've seen something like that and that we at least we'll know they'll bask at that temperature because this per this one animal is doing it for whatever reason. And that's only that might be like one time a year because we're only going out like the once. So there's a lot to it. And we don't want to focus too much on like will they climb, will they not work? We know regardless they're moving because they have to. Kids playing outside. No, you're good. We know they have to, so like they wouldn't have such a large range across like the, that entire like central belt of Africa if they weren't like a mobile species. So they have to go out and hunt and do things like that. So within the space of like a four by two by two, two feet isn't really like same even the, in within the realms of semi reality It's very much terrestrial. But we want to talk about like how they use the environment and like the movement patterns and things like that. We all have like telemetry data of like bull pythons from other areas. I believe it was Togo. Um, I've read so many papers in the past few months of me doing the spreadsheets and stuff that I've, this all blended together. So I'd have to go back and check that. But basically when da uh, Luca Lucili did like telemetry of like radio tracking stuff, they found that, during the day, they basically sat motionless, but at night, these animals were like out and about, and some of them were like over like a meter's height off the floor as well. So mm -hmm. there's data like that to play with, but also we want to like film things to show people. There's all the data we can show and all the science stuff, but a bit about going to Ghana is like collecting some microclimate data, but also just just taking people there and showing them, seeing it for their own eyes. Because there's there's a science bit that some people will find is enough, and some people just want to see it to believe it. So we want to combine the aspects of that to take people into Ghana. Yeah, and that's a really good point too, just about the enclosure size, the height of the enclosure. Almost everybody, it doesn't matter how large your enclosure is, if you have an enclosure inside, there's almost no way to really provide an arboreal 
enclosure. I mean, unless you have a six foot, eight foot enclosure, that might be different. But even if you have a three foot enclosure, yeah, that's pretty tall. This, the animal is going to be able to climb up and down. But if you put three feet outside, you know, it comes up to your hip. It, it's, it's not, it's not that much height. So to, to talk, to say an animal goes from one, you know, floor level to three feet, you know, that doesn't seem that outrageous. It's not like it's, you know, climbing up in a tree and spending all of its time in a tree just to say like, you know, it might climb up a, a trunk of a tree or a rock. Like I said, it's, 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 it's not the same as saying, you know, they're 40 meters up a tree. Yeah. So in terms of captive husbandry and how we keep them, it's largely semantics because whether you define it as a boreal behavior or semi-boreal behavior or not, it's about like, are they climbing? Yes or no. So therefore we can at least like just give them some opportunity to express that behavior and things like that. So yeah. we know that in captivity, we know anecdotally they will just climb. And we know in studies that when they're given the opportunity, they will climb and they would choose to do that regardless of like thermal like preferences or anything like that. They would just do, they would just enact the behavior. So it's about just like trying to find it in the wild, just to consolidate that in people's minds that I, I've seen that in the wild now from my own eyes. Now I want to do it. It's just all these different elements, these little seeds planted for people to actually be like, hang on, because some person might like use data and that's enough. Some person might like see them do it in captivity and that's enough. But some someone might be like, oh, I've seen it in the wild now and that really speaks to them. So it's trying to give it in multiple different ways to hopefully it speaks differently to different people. Yeah, exactly. And, and one thing, just discussing the natural range, it I think it's hard to actually visualize how huge their range is. Um, I, I forget, I think maybe Chaz from Snakes and Adders talked about, you know, if you if you flew from one end to the other, I forget how long the flight would be, but it, it's like several hours. Like, be, do, you, what, do you know what the full range is? The full range is very long. So it's all the way to the western tip um, over by like the Ivory Coast and that way and um, all the way down to I think touching down in the Congo and things like that and up, upper limits of like Sudan and things like that and across to past Nigeria and the neighboring countries around that I can't tell you their range off by heart unless I looked at something yeah yeah because um, I don't know all the countries of Africa off by heart I'm not not that into it but no but you can imagine just a swath of essentially straight across like the widest part of belt, Africa yeah. yeah and and so is it is it just um Ghana, Togo, and Benin, are those just the where they're most plentiful? No, it's not when they're most plentiful. It's just that's where the legal export's been over the past few decades. Okay. So people concentrate their efforts there because that's where the animals are exported from. So therefore your lineage should be from that area. Now that is perfectly sound until you realize that that's just where they're legally exported from. Right. So how much are you willing to bet that the blood that's in captivity is only from those areas? Or at some point, is it possible that some animals from other countries have come into these countries to be legally exported? No, the reptile so, would never do that. <laughs> so um, there's this whole talk about like, oh, yeah, the Nigerian populations might climb a lot, but these are from Ghana. So they these might not um, climb. Now, I would... I would debate that, but regardless if that was the case, how much are you willing to bet there is zero percentage Nigerian blood in our captive population? Yeah, there definitely is. I would imagine so. Yeah. Um, but one thing that we want to do is we want to go to like um, 
universities out, out in like Ghana and stuff and talk about how the land has like agriculturally changed throughout the years mm-hmm. and interview like locals like um and the local universities and stuff talking about like oh it's shifted to farmland and we've cut down all our trees and stuff but even when you look at like um drone footage there's a lot of trees in Ghana there's a lot of trees still it's just about where you go if you go and stand in the middle of someone's farm then you can say yeah there's no there's no trees but if you actually go to so forested habitat is like there's still trees i mean the whole dichotomy of like oh yeah there's no trees for the bull pythons to climb but also the boss can garner spend half the year in diapause up trees like losing weight like how can you say those same things about the same habitat for two different species unless you're implicating a bias there yeah yeah exactly um and it's so true. I mean, we, we definitely want to talk about the environment as they evolve. I mean, the environment's always shifting, but we know that they would have evolved, done most of their evolution within not necessarily a static landscape, but certainly not farm landscape. This farm is a relatively new thing. So that would be interesting to know as well. And so, so okay, so you have, you know, we're still kind of talking about money unlimited here. You're going to Ghana doing these things. So that's basically like the natural history side, your climate data, behavioral data, as much as you can about the wild. And, and you also mentioned that you wanted to, you know, go through as much of the peer already published peer reviewed literature as well and bring that into uh, a place where people can digest it in, you know, consumable bites, we'll say. And there's a third, I think, a third section to the study as well, or the deep dive, which is the SPI study. And it, w- would you consider that a third part to this? Third, fourth, fifth, who knows Whatever at this is. point. <laughs> so, yeah, so with this stuff about like all the literature, so when you, what you want to do is, because I did this for my, my gut loading as well, like a systematic review, um, and I did a meta analysis as well, but I'm not necessarily going to do a meta analysis for this, although I might. No, no, don't get ahead of yourself. Systematic <laughs> review where you basically like take all the literature that exists on the species and then you do a review or like a holistic overview of, uh, overview of the whole of literature and like the implications of it all combining together so what you do there is that you use like boolean search terms so you set up all your keywords for the boolean search terms and then you systematically go through and extract all the studies that exist um across different journals and stuff and then like grade them against like inclusion and exclusion exclusion criteria so the exclusion criteria for this is basically the studies that like a write up from a vet that's like, oh yeah, this strange parasite found in bull python, like the anomalies like that that aren't really going to be useful for like teaching people how to use the equipment and how to care from captivity and like the wild implications of behavior and stuff. If it's not relevant, that's going to go into that exclusion criteria and it's been like, stripped out. But everything that's included, I basically want to produce a review article as a as a paper and then put that out um to a journal to be published so that has never been done before with this species and we want to do that and then make it into like a story of like people sub subconsciously passively being spoon-fed and like just absorbing it throughout the documentary and not having to sit through and read like an article per se so we're gonna like show you it rather than like you read it so that way of doing it i don't think i've seen it done before um and that's just that one aspect of it has has uh any information from the peer-reviewed literature jumped out to you already i know some of it you would have already read previously but is there anything that you're like wow that's gonna be really cool to talk about um well a lot of the the ectoparasite difference um the stomach flush studies um as if i haven't talked about it before but 
there's a lot of stuff on like their eyes and like the the, the cones and rods in their eyes that see into the ultraviolet spectrum and also what color um wavelengths they see um easiest so i believe there's a spike in green in what they would see so that plays into a role of like if you're going to do like target training or things like that to use like green targets for mm. it to be like most responsive to them and things like that so we want to go into the nitty-gritty of like things like that so that really excites me there's a few studies on um like them during estivation and maternal incubation things like that, that we want to explore but there's a lot. I've got over 300 studies in the spreadsheet right now, and I haven't even read them all. Um, that's a long, ongoing process of like working on the deep dive whilst maintaining this channel, whilst maintaining another job, whilst maintaining like a, a life as well. So yeah. it's like being chipped away at. But there's a lot of it. I'm like, oh, 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 each time I read a title. So it's really exciting. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. And then what about the SPI study? I think that's more of Ellie's thing that she was sort of spearheading, and it sounded like there was some collaboration with Lori Torini as well. So first, can you tell us what SPI study even means and then how so that will work? It's a spread of participation index. So basically you grid out an enclosure into different zones. Um, and when the animal moves through these different zones, you can, through a mathematical formula, calculate how much, how equally they, they use the enclosure. Um, so you get like an index, like like UVI index, you'll get an SPI index, see how much the enclosure they use. Especially you want it to be as much, um, as high as to 100% as possible. So if you've got things like corns or rat snakes that are getting like 97 or something, I'm throwing theoretical numbers out now, but the bull python was also like 98 or 96, then these animals are using the enclosure just as equally as other active species that people perceive as really active. They perceive bull pythons as the pet rocks, but if mathematically they're using it just as much as other species, then we're going to prove that to be false. Or the opposite. If they barely use elements of the enclosure, we'll have a math mathematical number to see how the index of their enclosure use. But also from this study, we'll be able to like isolate and see what resources in the enclosure they most value and most use. So a humid hide, you know, belly heat rather than like heliothermy and like halogen back heat or uv or climbing or x y z um, and then we can make recommendations for like they really value this so if it's not like humidified great that means like people can like really easily implement that they're really cheap to do just shove some moss in a hole in a in a box or a hole <laughs> yeah. so things like that just little aspects of that can make huge ramifications for like a bull python's life let's say this study shows that they really, really, really utilize humidides. People don't often give them humidides because they associate like of just making it a high humidity environment already. But let's say they're like, no, love humidides. That means all these people talking about like, oh, they get stuck sheds in like glass fish tanks. Well, maybe breeders watching this can then go to like their customers that are going to use these glass fish tanks and by give it a humidide. This study showed this, and this is going to really help the shedding. So many elements of it that'd be really useful to like help to culture it wide. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's basically Laurie and Elliot are like taking the charge of that one. This one is where I'm taking like a semi back seat on it and I'm doing all the um the other aspect of like the deep dive because otherwise my brain's like eyes go in different directions. Yeah. But um Ellie's done one before. So she did a corn snake one as for her thesis that got published in the journal Rattel. 
Um, so Ellie's published one before. She's already done one on corn snakes. So she knows the methodology. She's got all the formulas down um, and she knows what she's going to do. So Laurie and Ellie are going to go for that. Laurie's got a lot of animals already. So we wanted to get Laurie's help. Um, and we're getting 20 animals. Um, we're getting all the vivarium set up, four by two by twos. Where we've got a schematics where all the equipment's exactly the same to the point of like millimeters inwards that this branch is placed and things like that. It's like that controlled. And then we've got an element of like citizen science as well. So like we're interviewing people right now um, for who we want to be involved in the study. And then some people will get free enclosures to use. Some people might already have enclosures. Some people have bought a bull python just to take part. So they're going to be involved. And then across these 20 animals, we're going to be film, filming them all from a period of like 6 p.m. to like 6 a.m. and then showing the nocturnal habit, uh, patterns because it's an index number. So if we just showed like just like the the a.m. and they just sit there, that's going to skew the data because we actually are going to say they don't use the habitat, but actually they are doing it outside of the recording time. So we want right. to make sure we're getting the... Um, nighttime stuff as well as like an overlap of like the lights going off at like seven half seven and then coming on at like five so there's like an hour four and after um lights going out where's like these opportunities to see whether they will like use the halogens and the uv and things like that but it'll be within that crepuscular behavior as well so that will measure how they use their environments and then that'll be a paper that is written as a part of that whilst also us like vlogging and filming it as part of the documentary series and all of this as well um so my own bull python that's in quarantine i say quarantine she's in a a really useful box under my bed with like her own like equipment that's away and uh doing like nido testing and and like all the parasitology testing and, and fecal screening but um she's like three feet away from my vivarium so like but also that is like pretty crabby quarantine, but it's quarantine that is actual applicable to keepers. So I want to show how to do the best you can in like a pretty crap scenario where it's not in a separate room, not in a separate airspace, but how to use biosecurity to be really, really, really efficient with it and like try to limit that and also spending the money to be really aggressive with testing as well to get past this initial period of worry um and the whole thing's going to be hopefully published and then the documentary is going to have to come out after everything's published because you can't publish a documentary before it's been published otherwise a journal won't take it so uh, it's going to take some time but it's going to be like nothing's ever been done before on spi for royals before so that's a world's first as well yeah and uh and just a note on the quarantine it, I've had vets on this podcast who've even said, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily about being in a separate room. The biggest thing for quarantine is equipment, separate equipment, gloves, or, you know, washing your hands between animals. Like that's the, that's the most impactful type of uh, quarantining. It doesn't have to be uh, in a separate room necessarily. And then so I, th I think as far as the SPI goes, it, the time is weighted, right? So if they do spend, you know, 90% of their time in a hide or does it get weighted or does, if, if, if they do kind of, access all four or eight you know four quadrants of the enclosure let's say would that still give you a score of 100 percent? or if they are in the one corner for like 99 percent of their time does it change that index number i maybe i have to look at the math i guess as far as i'm aware again i've taken a semi back seat on this so you'll probably either get ellie or laurie comment correct to me as far as i'm aware it's just the index of like how they've used the enclosure i don't think okay. the time 
check will change the number. I don't believe that to be the case. Okay, that, that'll be really cool. And like you said, that, that there are already people that are signing up to do this. And then as far as the enclosures, did you guys source enclosures from somewhere that you, you didn't pay for? Or that'll be part of the Sourcing. The <laughs> Sourcing, yeah. Still ongoing, yeah. Yeah. But we're getting there. We're getting there. We're close. Yeah, that is amazing. I mean, like like you said, it's going to be a world's first kind of across the board. And w- with the SBI study in particular, I mean, that's data that's just objective, right? It's just, this is the camera. This is what the animal did during the day, during the night and the day. It's, you can't really refute how the animal behaved. You know, it's just, that's how it is. Yeah. And to, because this is reptiles and research and because it's me, uh, I'm very aware that there's a few um, archetypes of keepers that will be like, wherever he does his bias regardless, right? Yeah. So, this footage data is going to students in the US uh, from a school university who are going to do the behavioral observations through the ethograms that we've we've created, or the, the list of behaviors. Then that data is going to go to a PhD student in the UK that's going to do the stat analysis. So we haven't touched it at any point. So therefore, we cannot be biased because we literally can't touch it. That's amazing. That, that's so a really good system. We've done that so people can't claim that we're biased because we literally haven't done it and i would like to think for the rest of the documentary if we were to go out to africa and it's like knee-high flooding or something silly and we show it it's quite obvious that we're not being biased we're like we'll show whatever we find yeah yeah exactly but people will realize after it comes out yeah basically and then as far as the school in the u.s have you already sourced that university for and the students mm-hmm. is a secret still I, I bet i could probably figure it out if i just think um Ironically, I don't even know the name because I've taken that much of a backseat to the university. So it's it's in place. The students are in place. The teachers in place. Um, I just don't know the answer. <laughs> okay. Okay. No, that's awesome. Um, yeah, it, it's it's going to be incredible. I mean, this is a, a, a tremendous amount of work. If, if and currently you have a GoFunding or uh, GoFundMe account set up that's already raised a bunch of money. But and we'll talk about how people can get involved and help with that in a second. But if you did have a limited budget. What, what, how would the project change? So I originally was like five grand and that buys the camera because it's going to be like Netflix quality approved camera. We just want to go for really high quality. It's going to produce a documentary that's like not just a YouTube video. Yeah, you're not going um, to Africa with an iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> and um, <laughs> that includes like the SPI study or it were intended to just include the SPI study. Um, and other elements of like just petrol and going to Ghana, like flights and things like that. Um, sorry, not going to Ghana. And then just the general documentary of like doing all of that. And then if we got to like 10, 15 grand, for like 10 grand budget to go to Ghana, then that would be um, if we'd go to Ghana. So the Ghana is only on the table if we get the money to go to Ghana. But if we get the money to do the documentary, the documentary can happen just without going to Ghana. Um, which is still a lot of world firsts. So it's still like monumental um, in my eyes anyway. Um, so that was the boundary there. And we want to take a lot of a team of people to do a lot of like the data collection. Again, I want, I want to take Tom, who is like one of the, the admins of Reptile Lighting, but he's also the guy that the zoos pay to come like measure their Baskin spots and like um, write a report for them. So you got the quality and things that need to be changed for the wavelengths and things like that. So he's the guy we want to take and like, right, collect all the data. And again, if people are like, oh yeah, you're trying to fudge, fudge data. It's like, we didn't collect data. So we want to do things like that to make sure that it's as objective as possible. 
Um, and let, let, let's say in the SPI, they like spend 90% of their time using barely heat and only come up and use the halogen like a little bit or things like that, or they barely even climb or it's been all the time climbing. Whatever they do is whatever they do. And if like they love barely heat over like uh, overhead, great. And it doesn't matter. So it's going to be objective regardless. Yeah. And I think that's, like you said, it's basically going to be almost, especially for the SPI piece, in, in some ways it's an open source data. You know, this is what we found and this is how. And by the way, anybody could do this on their own too. Like if, if you were unhappy with, if you didn't believe the data, then you could do it yourself. You could set up your own four by two or or even film inside a tub and see what's going on in uh, at nighttime with the animals. Are they pacing? Are they, are they um, you know, nose rubbing the top? Like there are different ways that anybody can get this information, especially if you already have that species. So it's not like it'll be a gate kept in any way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm actually filming the rub right now. So there's, I've already got lots of footage of her like pushing against the lid and like doing all that good goodness. Um, that'd be useful. But my bull python is actually from Ghana. Oh, really? Which I didn't realize. Yeah. So I got her from work. Um, and my colleague thought she was one of the ones that came in as like a rehome that was dumped on us. And then I was talking to my boss about it. He was like, no, that's one of my, I put out from the breeding group who I bought from another breeder about 15 years ago, who was, she's one of the ones that came in from Ghana as like the captive farmed royal. So my snake is from Ghana. Wow. Which is a bit strange to realize. That's okay. So, so your snake, I didn't realize that snake was that old actually. So I guess in the SPI study, you're going to have a full range of what sounds like a wild caught long-term captive. You're also sounds like you're going to have new, you know, baby captive bred animals as well. And I guess that'll play into the data too. Yeah. So what, which we're not trying to like, it would be nice if we could, if we could like get very select data sets of like old versus young time spent in rack versus not spent in rack and things like that, or male versus female. We've just got this like jumble hodgepodge pot of like different snakes. Then if the data's there after, let's say we had like five of this morph and five of normal, let's say, or five females, five this, then we can like com- do comparisons with the data. If the data isn't there, the comparison doesn't made. But if it's there, it's there. If it's not, it's not. That's not the focus. It's just like enclosure loose of different, like 20 snakes. Yeah. But yeah, you could retroactively go through the data again exactly. as long as you just ID'd each snake. This snake is, uh, you know, a captive bred, you know, two month old baby that we put in here this is a 15 month or 15 year old captive long-term captive all anybody can go back through that data and retroactively figure out if there was a difference between how each individual behaved yep so a lot of studies um some really cool studies publish like also extra um data alongside it so provide like all the data alongside the study or like things supplementary materials to the actual paper so we want to do all of that um, but also all our snake participants have also got their past history noted by past snakes. So like the fact that she's from the wild, we, we noted ones of like, was it from a rack? How long did it spend in a rack? Cause it always been the vivarium and things, things like that. So their past history will be like collected as well. So like if we have any anomaly, but then also correlates with like some aspect of their past life, then that'll hopefully provide an explanation in the discussion, um, things like that. But what I really want to do is... All the footage we got from the wild, if we do get to go from Ghana, I want to post like a 24 hour, 10 hour long, just like raw file footage on YouTube where it's like 
all the footage that was collected. Mm. So people can accuse you of cutting up a conversation or cutting things out that you don't want to show. I just want to put the entire lot up with this raw reel. So people are like, this is everything that was collected. So there's just a, a little bit more of transparency. I mean, obviously just put that on YouTube because they like ways to exclude something anyway, but you'd like to think that if I've put in effort of like trying to export a 24 hour long <laughs> file, that it's, that is that everything I've got sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, that would be very interesting as well. People can scrub through it all they want and figure out, uh, you know, everything that you saw. And so along with every good study is the hypothesis. Now I want to be careful before I ask this question that the, for, because I'm going to ask you uh, what your hypothesis is with this information. And, and, and the way I'm going to ask it to you is how do you think we will want to care for ball pythons after gaining some of this information? But for the listeners, a hypothesis doesn't color your, doesn't make you biased to the data. I know that's the beauty of science is that it doesn't matter what your hypothesis is. Um, the data will tell you if you're right or wrong. And I feel like if, you know, as you go through your hypothesis, there are going to be people, the naysayers out there are going to say, well, see, this is his bias is coming out, but you're actually allowed and you should have a hypothesis before you start embark on a study and it cannot influence the conclusion. That's how science works. So I just want to make that clear. But as far as a hypothesis goes at the end, just say this takes a couple of years, we get all the data, the documentary's done. Maybe you go to Ghana. Do you have a prediction of what you think a good quality ball python captive environment would look like? I would predict that there's a little bit of heterogeneity. I don't know use that word. I fucked it anyway. I would predict, <laughs> I would predict that um, they will use a lot of belly heat. They would also use um UV, I would imagine so, because in other other studies, they behaviorally have been seen to bask, and more so when UV was included at the basking spot. Um, but also, I think that some of them would climb a little bit. Um, I can't imagine uh, 12 weeks of filming and not climbing once and things like that. But it's about how equally and how much so they do it to merit like it being a priority. Um but I'm really going into it with an open mind because a lot of stuff has got a lot of like past history to the snake. So it could be all over the place or it could be really like um, all going one way or it could be like this hodgepodge of like anomalies all over the place because some have come from racks, some have come from vivariums, some are different morphs, some are like dark normal, some are like light, light, very light morphs and things like that. I believe someone's using an albino. So it'd be interesting to see like that, that individual's data and things like that. So... I think they're going to use their enclosure a lot more equally than people realize. But I believe the the you, basically you have like the null and the alternative hypothesis. So it's like premise, does it do this? And then the null premise is like, it didn't do this. Proved or disproved. And it's like, that's as like black and white as that is. So we'll have like um, some hypotheses and then were they proved or were they disproved? And that's literally it. So it's not something that's going to be like, oh, you've made a hypothesis to make it biased. It's like, did it prove it or did it not? Yeah. Yeah. And that's how, that's how science works. That's the beauty of it. And then as far as goals, obviously the primary goal is to bring new information into the hobby in a way that's exciting and interesting and engaging. Is there any other overarching goals that you guys have with this? Like, do you have a, a vision for what this could become or, or anything along those lines? I really want it to be one of those things that like lingers that everyone knows about that like, all the shops and like reptile stores can be like 
go watch this video to the person that's buying their first ball python like it just provides a lot i know how hard it is as person as someone that works in a store that have all this information in your head and this first time person comes in you got to like verbally vomit all over them to get all this information out and it's nice that they can go away and not be like what do they say again and start panicking they've got a resource given to them they can like watch over and over and over again so i really want to provide this resource to the hobby that helps everyone yeah yeah and i, I can totally relate to that when somebody asks like i'm just getting into a snake like what should i do and you're like that is such a huge question. I don't even know where to begin. So that would be a really, and, and like like we talked about at the top of the show, it's the most popular snake species in captivity. It's obviously one of the most popular reptiles in captivity, if not the most popular. So it, it will be incredibly useful. And then hopefully it creates a template for either you guys to do move on to another species or for another party to take on and do something similar because it's not like you have a proprietary um you know, idea here, like anybody could do it. It'll be, it takes someone to pave the way and show people this is how it can be done. But how amazing would it be if somebody else took another species? I mean, there's a million species to choose from. How much positive could we have from herpeticulture if people started doing things along these lines? So we want to obviously show what this, what YouTube reptile content could be as well. So we want to take the bar that's here. We want to place it up here and be like, look, this is what you could do and it'd be really nice if this got like a lot of views so suddenly like a lot of other youtubers look to to it and be like hang on a minute that's a that's a cool idea um so hopefully people do i mean we're gonna do it ourselves regardless um so if they don't want to do like a deep dive and what doesn't do it justice like we're gonna do it anyway so it doesn't really matter but it's the more observations and the more trips and the more footage and the more data the better so i would love it if people were to go mad with it yeah, absolutely. For those who are as excited as I am, I'm sure everybody listening is like, this is amazing. What can people do to get involved or help out? So you can obviously spread the word about it. It's the easiest thing to do. We also have a GoFundMe that um, has a goal amount of £15,000. We're at 2000 right now. Um, so if you wanted to chuck a, a dollar or two or, or whatever in there, that'd be really appreciated. There's also an Amazon wish list for um, just for the SPI study that Laurie has set up where like the things that are going in the vivariums are still like being collected. So when Laurie actually set that up, she's like, right, I've worked everything out and it's going to be 10 grand for everything that goes in there. And I'm like, sorry, what? <laughs> oh. Sorry, what, Laurie? What did you say? <laughs> so it was very much more expensive than we initially Because um, that would be cameras, for. equipment, uh, enclosures, lighting, all that type of stuff? Even just like panes of glass, because mm. we're putting like heat mats into vivariums and people are worried about like smothering and causing a fire. So we're putting the panes of glass top and bottom and then like slotting the heat mat in between. So it's on the underside of glass that allows it to do the conduction belly heat, but also it's kept a little bit of airflow and not not being smothered. But the, even the budget for the glass came to 1000 And I'm like, well, that needs to be cut down. We'll find a way of making that cheaper. But... Everything is on a wish on a wish list on Amazon. So if you want to head on over and like even just one thing that you wanted to buy, you don't have to buy like the ten of each individual item. If you want to buy one item to help uh, me, Ellie, and Laurie do this study, um, that'd be really appreciated. And then the, obviously the deep dive as a whole on the GoFundMe is the the money pot that's going to hopefully going to Africa and things like that. Yeah, and uh, as far as the glass goes, couldn't you use ceramic tile or would that would that be okay? Because that's like a dollar a piece. Um, potentially we were looking into that, um, and it was to do with, uh, she was looking at like glass 
chopping boards that are like feet because you can put the feet back to front and then after that suspends itself with airflow. Right. Um, I think she's got a fair few at the moment uh, that people have bought. So people have been generous enough to like start buying them, things like that. So a lot of things I've literally left the wish list because people have just bought them. Um, we wanted 20 cameras and someone came and just bought 10. That's amazing. Um, I've been so shocked to some people that have been like 300, 200, like 400 pound, like donations to the GoFundMe that people that really, really believe in it. Um, so it's quite humbling but also a lot of pressure as well because you like people really believe this is going to be a big thing so i better make sure it is a big thing yeah exactly but, i mean I, I was going to mention the 10 because the person who purchased those cameras may even be listening to this right now someone purchased 10 webcams basically and that's not cheap so it's incredible but that shows the energy that's behind this people are just starving for this energy they want to get involved whether that's be, you know take part in the study itself or just financially support it i think the reptile hobby and herpeticulture in general is just so ready for something like this that uh, people are just eager to help it's the biggest thing that's happened in reptile youtube content so far i think yeah. i think that's a fair thing to say in terms of the scientific aspect nothing like this has ever been done before in like a literature sense in the systematic reviews and things and like the world first we're doing there but i mean as a reptile youtube content sense this is an, a whole new frontier. Yeah. And it's scary. <laughs> yeah, I would be scared if I was you too. <laughs> but it's a, it's a good scare. It's, it's, a, it's like the type of pressure that people need to perform. And I think that you guys are going to knock out of the park. And I can't wait to hear more about it as it develops. Is there anything that we didn't mention throughout this uh, conversation that you wanted to say before we officially wrap up? The whole entire series is a lot more like episodes of these three things. So also... Her name's Maroa, so it's Ghanaian for like queen, because um, I've got that T-shirt where uh, where it's like the royal python pun, where it's like the crown, the scepter. So then now I'm like, well, that just is that snake because it's like Maroa, queen. Um, but her, we're going to be documenting her individual journey from being like coming from Africa to being a breeder for years, produce, producing loads of normals, and then coming to me. And she's never seen UV in her life, so we're going to do some bloods. And then hopefully after the study of the SPI and how, like being under UV, we'll see if there's a blood difference change and things like that. Um, but there's lots of micro aspects of the documentary that uh, I can't talk about because they're maybes. They're mm. maybes that would be like amazing. Um, so we're hoping to get some people involved that will take it to like a whole other level than what we thought it was going to be. So we move the level up here and then the maybes are going to make it like up here and we're going to blow. I can't, I cannot express how much if it goes the way I want it to. And the vision that I have in my head, is going to blow everyone's freaking minds. I can so wait. there's some maybes that are on the cards, but until we get some further down the line and see what money we're playing with, then we'll see what sort of size the documentary is going to be. But I think it's going to happen regardless because we're at 2000. Um, it might not just be at the, the the scale we want it to and going to Africa and stuff, but we shall find out. Yeah. And and even even the doing the blood samples and whatnot is super exciting. I mean, I'm not sure that's been done before and you know, documenting something like that. And I, I wanna say, hopefully this isn't one of the maybes, but you guys were talking about doing x rays with that animal as well. whether that will show anything, I don't know. Um, but who knows? Just data collection. It'll be fascinating to see. Yep. I mean the x-ray, um, I'm not really hedging bets on me like, being anything in particular, but um, it's 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 been offered, so we'll do it. Um, and if it's nothing, it's nothing, but it's just cool to see like a snake skeleton, really, isn't it? Her, her personal journey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Full health check. Why not? 
Exactly. Well, I can speak for everybody say that we're incredibly excited for this and uh, happy to support it and cannot wait to see the results as they come through. Can you remind everybody where they can find just yourself online as well as the GoFundMe? So you can find me at Reptiles and Research on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. The GoFundMe is obviously GoFundMe slash F. I think that stands for fundraiser slash like um, Ball Python Deep Dive Project. Um, or something along those lines. I think if, even if you just Google search Ball Python Deep Dive Project, I think the GoFundMe comes up straight away. Um, but obviously, I'm sure we'll link it in the description and whatnot. And it's all over my channel at the moment anyway. So you'll find it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I'll make sure it's all in the show notes. So Liam, thank you so much for for jumping on the podcast. And I cannot wait, like I said, to see this goes. And thank you for taking on such a ridiculous project because I, ridiculous we're all, project. I think that's the only way to say it. It's ridiculously huge and uh, we can't wait to see. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I'm terrified, but I think it's going to hopefully... I'm a bit of a perfectionist, so I I think we're going to do it. Yeah, it's going to go great. All right, that is the end of that episode. Liam, thank you so much for stopping by and being a guest on the podcast again. I cannot wait to see how this project evolves over time. As I said through the outro there, everybody's excited about this and the fact that the wheels are already turning and this thing is already in motion is so exciting and it's going to be huge and if this is pulled off in the way that you and ellie have planned it is going to be massive for herpeticulture in general so i am very very much looking forward to seeing this in unfold over the next couple of months and probably year this is a huge project so listeners if you are interested in supporting it in any way the easiest thing you can do like liam said is share it share it on social media anywhere you can either this episode or any of the other liam has a real short i think three or four minute video on reptiles and research youtube page that's probably the best thing to share because it's short and concise and really explains exactly what they are planning on doing of course if they want more detail they can come to this episode here so thank you so much for listening to the podcast again if you're looking for more information on the podcast make sure you head to animals at home network.com you can join us over at patreon at patreon.com slash animals at home thank you so much to custom reptile habitats for sponsoring the podcast your support is greatly appreciated and again if you want to support this ball python deep dive make sure you head to the show notes and you can find all the ways to support there i will catch you guys in the next episode